Welcome to Scores and Pours, the podcast where you learn about wine and classical music, hosted by me, radio host Emily Reese, and sommelier Jill Mott. Today, we're going to have a crash course. We've been notified that they are popular. Great call. And so today, we're going to do a, in honor of springtime, rosés, crash course on rosés, and mm-hmm. a crash course on... We're going to talk about oboes and English horns. Sweet. I know. <laughs> Check out patreon.com slash scores and pours for a full playlist and a wine list and consider supporting the musicians you hear by buying their music. Good day, Emily Reese. Well, hello, Jill Mott. I'm, di- I'm just going to start off by saying, do you want to drink rosé? <laughs> I definitely want to drink rosé. Oh, <laughs> uh, well... First and foremost, how are you today? I'm doing great, thank you. Good. Yeah. I'm I'm doing well as well. Um, I'm. It's always a happy day when we can drink rosé. What do you have to say? Hey, hey, hey! <laughs> don't wow. know where that came from, but anyway. <laughs> uh, so, you are going to talk about. I'm going to talk about oboe and English horn, the instruments, and they're you know closely related, but they sound fairly different. So we're going to talk about them and their differences and all of that fun stuff. Yeah. Some friends have made mention of the fact uh, to me that they, we've been talking about classical music lately and they were like, oh, you know, who, what's your favorite orchestral instrument? And blah, blah, blah. and the oboe seemed to be like of higher regard than I thought. And Interesting. So, really? Um, yeah. So okay. it's cool that uh, mm-hmm. friends and fellow listeners will uh, probably enjoy this yeah. episode. Learn a little something. Well, where, where shall we commence? Let's drink, man. God, after my own heart here. All right, well, so I want to talk first about what is rosé. It's fairly easy. It's wine that is the hue uh, that's rosé in color or mm-hmm. slash pink yeah. slash blush. Just before we crack open some rosé, I wanted to talk about the history of rosé um, because it's relatively, I think it's a pretty ancient thing because back in the day, most wines were made, they were like field blends. You'd have like white and red and gray and pink and all grapes planted together. You would throw them all together. They would all ripen at different times. So you'd have an insurance policy. Every year you'd have wine, right? Some years uh, there's certain mold or certain fungus would affect one grape, not the other. Wines or grapes would ripen and a frost would come maybe a little early and decimate certain vines, but others would be safe, Mm -hmm. vice versa. So- they think that because these colors were commingling in a fermenter or in a in a some sort of vat, yeah. Most most historians are are pretty sure that like wines were like a darkish rosé in in color. Fast forward now, post World War II is when we see like a a resurgence in rosé mm. or that we have some popular uh, Portuguese, some very rich Portuguese families that came out with rosé, specifically Mateus, uh, which was like rosé still and rosé sparkling, but they had a little residual sugar in them. Okay. So they were really easy to drink poolside. You know, Saddam Hussein's favorite wine was Mateus. Jimi Hendrix was in a Mateus commercial back in the day. So like it was quite popular. Fast forward a f- couple more decades and we have... Zinfandel was a very prominent red grape, and people saw, you know, they thought, well, let's experiment with making a rosé-colored wine here in the States. And um, I won't mention the names of the producers, but a couple wineries took Zinfandel, made it pink. Through a long, slow fermentation, the fermentation stuck, meaning it stopped. Okay. And you were left with, like, this pinkish wine that had a little sugar left Mm. in it. 
that beat was extremely popular because as humans, we say, we don't like sweet, but let's be honest, we <laughs> do. People then be started to back sweeten rosés. And that's oh, where wow. we that's where we get a bad name. Like people are like, I don't okay. like rosés because they're sweet. Yeah. Well, you know, the the officers that were coming back from France with a taste from rosé for mm-hmm. rosé because they had had it uh, on the southern shores and the provincial southern area of France were drinking dry rosé. Okay. Nowadays, we see a huge increase in rosé production and rosé consumption. I have it written down here that in 2018, there were 18.7 million cases of rosé produced. Wow. People are thirsty for the pink yeah. pink stuff. Yeah. And let me tell you, the majority of it that's good in quality mm-hmm. is D-R-Y. <laughs> so Dry. Dry. And so what I wanted to pour for you first, we'll talk about how it's made maybe after some music, but I wanted to pour a great quality version of what most people think about when they think about rosé. They think about a medium-bodied, light to medium-bodied pink wine that isn't sparkling, it isn't too dark, mm-hmm. and it's made in this provincial way, which means not a lot of skin contact, kind of easy easy to drink, not too complicated. How does it turn pink if there's not a lot of skin contact? That's a great question. So I was going to get into that later, but a little quick <laughs> a th- snippet before we start sipping. Most color, for the majority of grapes, most of the color resides in the skin. So mm-hmm. time with juice on the skins you, with each passing hour, you get more and more color. Sure. And you'll reach a point, a saturation point, where it'll start to take away color, but that's then when we get into red wine territory. Okay. So usually anywhere between four hours to, say, a day mm-hmm. is the most that people will will let the skins rest with the juice to give it a little color. Okay. So this is Martha Stuman's. Rosé from 2018. She's a really great winemaker out of Mendocino, California. And this is her Zinfandel that's done with a little bit of Nero d'Avola, which Nero d'Avola is uh, native to southern Italy and Sicily. Okay. And so uh, this is a really cool blend of those grapes that are aged, fermented and aged in old French oak for a short time uh, before it's bottled with very minimal sulfur. Discours and bores. Discours and bores. What do you think of the color? It's almost like salmon colored to me. It's like an orangish pink. Yeah, that's yeah. a really common descriptor for rosé is like yeah. certain. And what's great is when you get, you know, the hoity-toity sommelier community and they're like, yeah. but does it look like coho salmon or king salmon? Oh, and you're God. like, okay. <laughs> We're going there, aren't we? <laughs> Looks like sockeye, bitch. Does it, look, does it look smoked or not smoked? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, it's very pretty though, but yeah, very um, orange hue to the pink. And you'll notice that mm-hmm. when a wine is first released, a lot of times... It can in a rosé. It can be really brilliantly pink salmon color, and as it ages, which this is now a year old, okay, those little copper inflections start to happen. Oh, neat. So, okay, what do you think of the nose? I think it smells really fresh, like um, very fruity. That's as good as I can do right now, Jill. What about what about a little bit of stewed fruit? And mm. I say that because in 2018, when I first smelled it and tasted it. It tasted fresher, mm-hmm. and then now that it's a year old, a lot of rosés can age. So to say that you need to drink rosé of the season or of mm-hmm. the year is not is a little bit of a misconception. But in this case, um, it smells every bit as good as it did in 2018, but in 2018 it did smell a little more of fresh fruit. Now to me it smells a little bit more of like dried with fresh fruit, stewed with fresh fruit hmm. kind of thing. Interesting, yeah. What about the palate? It tastes, it's like thick almost. Mm. It has a really thick texture to me. 
in a good way, not in a bad, not, you know, it's not bad, but like. Can you tell? We just got done um, recording a Vessels episode a short while ago. Can you tell that there's oak here? Like that creaminess that you said you experienced oh, yeah, and that little bit mm-hmm. of, um, yeah, it's like fruit, but then there's some vanilla aspect, yeah, yeah. Um, just a small amount. Yeah, it's totally acceptable within my personal boundaries of what I would like for oak, oak, right? Yeah, yeah, this is acceptable. Yeah, me too. And I that's where I think Martha does a great job because most of her wines are done in oak, and yet this is done very in, in a judicious sense. You know, you you get that little bit of breathing. Mm-hmm. It adds a little bit of you said textural complexity. No, mm. it's uh, it's very good. It's not what I expected. Do you notice how much it still has quite a nice that that round first of all. Let's keep diving into the wines. It's fun. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um Zinfandel's kind of can be kind of a round, fruity grape. So I feel like this is very accurate. Some people say that with rose, varietal expression kind of goes away because you don't mm. give it enough time on the skins. Yeah. Which I, I could see where that happens. But this is a really nice job of, you know, the you have the oak that sort of accentuates that kind of bulbous, fruity nature of Zinfandel, mm-hmm. which is, I think, really fun and really cool. But it still has really nice acid, you know? I, I'd be really curious when she picked this to be able to have, you know, Nero d'Avola and Zinfandel, two grapes that are not typically, like, super high in acid, to mm-hmm. be this bright after a year. Yeah. It's really fun. Yeah, it is. It's nummy. Thanks, Martha. Let's oboe. <laughs> yeah, let's oboe. Okay, so we'll just get this out of the way first. Oboe is the instrument that you hear tune an orchestra. If you've ever gone to a symphony concert and, you know, the symphony, the orchestra's out on the stage, somebody stands up and plays a a note, the other people tune their instruments to it. That's the oboe. Why is that? Apparently, it's because the oboe has a very piercing sound that's easy to hear. Uh, also because oboe was one of the very first wind instruments allowed, not allowed per se, but one of the very first wind instruments in with a string orchestra. Mm. And an oboe has a much more consistent intonation, meaning, you know, when an oboe plays an A, it's going to sound like an A. But if your violin sits out in the car overnight and you pick it up and you try and play what you think is an A... It's not going to sound Good like call. an A, right? Yeah, and I guess it would have to do too where, yes, embouchure and force matters, but you have with a bow, let's say, to mm-hmm. use that violin, mm-hmm. if, you, if you're pushing or if you're slower or mm-hmm. if you're just a millimeter off with your finger, yeah. that A could be a A flat-ish or something. Yeah, right? okay. no fingers on the A. So they don't have to use fingers. Oh, you know what I mean. Fine. I do, though. I do. <laughs> in, a, yeah. in, a, in a violin, in a, if they were playing in a D. Yeah, yeah. If they were playing, maybe not a D, but. <laughs> <No>! <laughs> if they were no, playing we're a good. B flat. Yes, correct. So also then that begs the question, well, what if there's a piano on stage or what if there's a harpsichord on stage or some kind of instrument like that that we've talked about that you can't tune those on the fly. So then what would happen is. The, the oboist would tune to the piano and then tune the rest of the orchestra from there. So does cool. that kind of make sense? So Piercing. that's Yep. So you go with who's the most reliable and just f- because of history, that became the oboe and has just stayed that way. Yeah. So oboe is, uh, you know, it's black. It's got a lot of keys on it. Um, it's usually made 
of a wood called African blackwood. And that's what modern oboes are made out of. And the same for the English horn, right? Just to yep. think of the similarities between the two. They're both made out of usually the same wood? Yep. Okay. Yep. And they use the same material for their reeds. So what makes an oboe or an English horn or a bassoon unique from like a clarinet or a saxophone, saxophone would be... A clarinet and a saxophone has what's called a single reed. So it's just one piece of wood that they put up against a mouthpiece and bind together with a, either a plastic or a metal mouthpiece. And that single piece of reed vibrates against the mouthpiece mm -hmm. for, for sound. With an oboe or an English horn or a bassoon, instruments like that are called double reeds because that's two pieces of cane bound together in some way, depending on if it's an oboe or an English horn, depends on how it's bound together, those two pieces. And those two pieces are what goes in the mouth of the player. So they're literally putting just two pieces of wood together and vibrating those very quickly. And it sounds really simple, but it's actually really a complicated thing. And most uh, certainly professional double reed players make their own reeds. It's a, it's a whole like other skill set they have to have. And they need to learn how to carve this wood by hand and literally tie it together with twine if it's an oboe reed or metal or, you know, it's just like... Well, and I was reading too thing. that, that uh, you know, many oboists specifically were saying this on this oboe website I was looking at earlier, <laughs> but that they say that 80% of playing their instrument is about knowing how to, like, their embouchure and their reed and 20% yeah is the actual key playing. I sure. thought that was super interesting. I believe that for sure. I mean, reeds are such a huge part of what they have to master, really. And it was and yeah. it's one of the with, you know, we take out the reeds, the what we think of as the oboe or maybe with the reeds too, you tell me. One of the oldest instruments we have, right? I mean, besides drums, yeah. besides like percussion, like dating back to Egyptian times, right? Mm -hmm. Assyrians, Babylonians, like 3000 yeah. BCE, yeah? yeah, in a different form, of course. Oh, yeah. But There's all kinds of double-reeded instruments. One of the ones you hear all the time that most people don't even know what it's called is a daduk. I'll put some daduk in here. That's like what you hear in like every single Arabic film mm, score. Yeah. thing that I love too because I'm always like well it, it, you know could this harm the environment there is like no danger of running out of the cane that they use to make reeds it's considered an invasive species in the United States in like San wow. Diego they go and cull it and burn it all it's so rampant and so easy to grow wow. and the reed stuff that's called Arundo Donax or Donix uh, also known as Spanish cane and it is like in no danger of extinction in any way. And honestly, neither is the the blackwood, the African blackwood. That's not in any danger either, which is kind of nice, you know. They're the oboists and the coranglais of the world, our <laughs> yeah. environmentalists, and yeah. they didn't even know it. <laughs> <laughs> so let's listen to some oboe. Please, yeah. Um, when we listen to English horn in a moment, you know, we'll talk about how that's a much deeper sound because uh, it is lower 
than the oboes. But it's not drastically lower. It's not the difference between what you would think of like a soprano sax and a baritone sax where there's octaves between them. It's really a, kind of a subtle difference, like the difference between a woman who sings soprano and a woman who sings alto. So, you know, one can clearly sing lower than the other, and that's what we have in the English horn, but they do share notes. So yeah, so let's listen to some oboe. And we're just going to listen. I mean, I don't even know where to start because these are all such good examples. But let's listen to some Stravinsky because we haven't listened to Stravinsky in in a while here on uh, Scores and Pours. So this is the second movement from a ballet that Stravinsky wrote called Pulcinella. That was written in, what, the 20s and revamped in the 60s or something like that? Sounds about right. Okay. Yeah. Just give people a little Exactly. This is a 20th century piece for sure. And uh, although... Although, based on not Stravinsky's melodies, this is music from the Baroque era that Stravinsky reworked. So um, that's fun, too. really started having its heyday in the Baroque era, although it was around before that. There, I had to force myself to not use Bach because there's so much beautiful, beautiful Bach. I'm, I'm glad you chose some yeah. Stravinsky. I was reading that the oboe joins the orchestra in like the 1650s, 60s, yep. and then the English horn was roughly 100 years later. Yep. Okay. Yep. Yeah, that's exactly right. Mid-1600s, you start to see the word oboe. Obviously not in English. Uh, you start to see it in French, H-A-U-T-B-O-I-S, which is why people in college call it hot boys. But <laughs> that's not at all how it's pronounced in French. It really is much more like oboe, which is how then in Italian they started to spell it like O-B-O-E. And that's how we got that. And so, then you start to see that word oboe in scores and stuff. Yeah. So when we were just listening to... And if we listen to again, mm-hmm. it's very melodic, it sounds. It's very pretty. Yeah. It's kind of, um, you know, the, the tempo's larghetto. It's very flowing. Kind of pensive, yeah. Do you find that that's usually what the oboe is used for? Or sometimes is it like, <laughs> like very Mozart-y? Like what, or is it all oh, over the place? Oh, for sure. It's all over the place. Okay. I mean, it's a tremendously versatile instrument. And it's so funny that you bring that up because now that I think about the examples that I that I have for today, they're all beautifully lyrical and melodic in that way. Mm-hmm. And uh, even though they're from very, three different, very, very different composers. Um, but yeah, the oboe uh, can be very dexterous and virtuosic as well. So, yeah, it's just, it's literally just in that regard can be just like any other woodwind instrument. Like you hear clarinetists going, and oboes do that too. This rosé, as much as it's, I think, really fun, the color's fun, it's, you know, got this brightness and it's just easy to drink. There's also like a, with the oak, it's got a level of seriousness, you know, that if you wanted to start to get into like pairing it with food or, um, this is a great, very like this very lyrical rosé. And at the same time, I think it could, if you just wanted to like 
chug a glass and have fun. And yeah. at poolside, you definitely could. Yeah. But I'd prefer not to chug it. I'd prefer <laughs> to Stravinsky it. Enjoy it. So here's another great example and uh, another composer I actually don't think we've ever had on Scores and Pours in Rafe Von Williams. Now, Rafe Von Williams, his name looks like Ralph. It is not. It's Rafe. Rafe Von Williams, really such a singular composer, just a voice that is so Rafe Von Williams, like Nobody else sounded like that when he started writing music. And it's very what we'll call modal, and we'll talk about that someday, hopefully on an episode of Scores and Pours, because modal music uh, made its way back in the 20th century big time after having been gone for about 400 years. But modal music is what we had for thousands of years before we got to what we have today. So hopefully we'll talk about modal music sometime, but Vaughn Williams very much into modal music, and this concerto is in a mode, which is cool, and it's just beautiful. So let's just listen to a tiny bit of this uh, oboe concerto by Ray Vaughn Williams. So he, what's interesting I found too is he, this is very pastoral. Yes. And that he studied with Ravel. Yes. And I was expecting, you know, I've heard his stuff before, but never, you know, sitting down and really digging in. And I was expecting something else, you know? A lot of times I think people take what they learn from their mentors and their masters and they make it their own, but you can tell that influence. And Mm -hmm. maybe you could with another piece, of course, but like with this, it's just nowhere to be found. Yeah. I I don't find anyway. For me, a lot of Von Williams sounds like he's got and, and I mean this in a in a really respectful and positive way. It's like he's got a paintbrush with all the colors on it and he just paints. I mean it's just these wide broad, thick sonorities that just move in. A, there's a lot of parallel motion, uh, and I, I, I don't know. Let's listen to it. It's so beautiful. So Here's. this is his concerto for oboe and strings with mm-hmm. three movements, and you're going to We're just going to listen to a little second. bit of the first one. Oh. Yeah, just a little bit of the first movement. Listen to the motion of the accompanying strings, how it's moving a lot together. Similar direction motion. I know that this is probably a, considered a fault in recording, but I love when you can hear the keys move. Yes, I do too. It makes it real. Oboe. The oboe, man. It's love a beautiful, it. beautiful instrument. I love it. I love it. And it's really hard to play, but yeah, I love it. Maybe I'll play you a C scale in it someday. That'd be amazing. Yes. All right, well, I wanted to give everyone a brief, you know, how is rosé made? Because um, we talked about the first way to make rosé, which is how the per- 
post-flirtation, the Martha Stuman rosé is made, a brief amount of skin contact, and you you know you press it straight away when you're when you finished, and you're left with that color. You can also mix red and white grape juice together or okay. wine together. Um, that's illegal in most areas of the world that have a region de- regional designation. So if you have Rioja, if you have Lange Rosato, for example, you okay. can't you can't be blending red and white. But in Champagne is one of the few places that it's allowed. Really? You'll add a very small amount of red to make rosé color. Hmm. Um, that's not to say all rosés are made that way in Champagne. But there are people nowadays who are like, they don't belong to any appellation, and they're like, "F this, we're just going to do it anyway." And they're making uh-huh. really cool, okay, cool rosés by mixing them. Yep. Yeah. Another way you can make rosé is a method called sagné, which means to bleed off, and it's sort of like the first example where you have a minimum maceration. But how it started was a lot of times um, when you're making a red wine, if you want to concentrate your red wine further with the skin to juice ratio and I've done this before in a cellar, you'll bleed off a little bit of juice that's starting to get that color from a red wine. So now you've siphoned off some rosé, or if you just want to make rosé, yeah, siphon off a little as a sagné, and then you have a red wine that will be more tannic and have more color because you have more skin to great must ratio. Okay. And then that would be, you could technically call that a rosé de sagné. Like a oh. Sanya method rosé. Okay. The last one um, is a field blend, like I mentioned. Mm-hmm. So if you were to just harvest everything together and co-ferment them together, you'd be left with this probably quite dark um, rosé. Yeah. Um, so that's the last method. And um, so nowadays you can have a grape like Pinot Gris that we've mentioned on the show before as a pink grape, Trousseau Gris, which is kind of a grayish pinkish grape. Those, you know, a day on the skins or or 25 days on the skins and you're left with like an orangish hmm. pinkish kind of hybrid wine. Yeah. But enough talking. Yeah, and, man. And let's get to drinking again. Let's do it. So this next wine is one of my one of my favorite wines uh, from last year just in how I mean, you look at the color and it's definitely it says rosato right on the label, right? So you know it's a, it's meant in their eyes to be a rosé. Yeah. It is some people could call it a light red. But it's so dark. Yeah. I would say this is a dark rosé. So this is from Cantina Giardino, which they are located in Campania. So we're south of Rome, and we're getting towards the tip of the boot, but we're not quite there. Just like uh, Martha Stuman, they're organically growing their grapes. Um, the grape here is called Aglianico. They make several different wines, lots of different wines. Aglianico is a grape that has a lot of color. Most like red Aglianicos that are in the world are like almost a blackish sort of color, black, dark purple color, which this is direct to press. So they snipped these grapes, got them into the press load, and this is the color you get. Wow. So this is maybe four hours on the skins. Wow. And we're already at this color, which is like, I don't know, what's the closest thing we could compare this to for people? Uh, like an actual it's rose. It's burgundy though. Yeah. Yeah. An actual rose, that like, kind of deep burgundy red. Yep. Yeah. Yep. But Damn. still having like a rose hue, you know, it's not quite yet red. And if I were to ever say, what does natty wine smell like? This is what natty wine smells like. Yes. <laughs> Fucking barnyard. <laughs> it's like a barnyard in a glass. I can't wait to taste it. 
I hear those descriptions <laughs> and I say my work here is done. Yeah. This is the last episode of Scores and Fours. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> when Emily Reese starts talking about natty wine smelling like barnyard. <laughs> and if this is natty wine. To barnyard. To barnyard. <laughs> I smell like tons of apple cherries, like a lot of like stone fruity but it's like very yeasty, very estery, very barnyardy. Like to me, this is what this is what an orchard smells like. When you have when you walk on a farm in a farm, you have like yeah. animals on the farm, but you also yep. have like apple blossoms and cherry blossoms, yeah. and and you smell those fruits and flowers in the air. Mm-hmm. Like, but you also smell animals. This is what that smells like. It's just so living. So we have volcanic soils here, which helps with that little bit of when you smell like something sulfuric a little Mm -hmm, bit. mm -hmm. That's that. I don't think I've ever said this. This, I drank it and I was like, pixie sticks. This tastes like pixie sticks. The scores and pours. Scores and pours. Oh, That's hell's to the hell's to the. I'm sorry. Yeah. Pardon me, mom. Plug your ears. <laughs> hell's to the fucking yes. <laughs> this is the kind of wine. It's ridiculous. That I want to put in a mug. It's seriously like a Jolly Rancher at the end. And go to bed with. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's so good. I want okay. to marry this wine in Vegas. That's how much I love it. <laughs> okay, so um, to talk about how it's made. So this is their 2018. It's a Rosato Frizzante. So I wanted to bring a wine that had a little fizz, mm-hmm. had a lot of a much darker color. And I was like, oh, I guess I'll bring this wine. That's too bad. <laughs> they use no temperature control. They use no sulfur. What they do is they bring this Aglianico into the press. They press it right away. They leave it to age for about seven months. And I think it's in stainless steel. What happens is in seven months that dries, you have a dry wine, a dry rosé wine. They take must, grape juice, from Aglianico. They add it to the bottle to make a second fermentation happen in the bottle. So it's sort of like champagne method. Cool. But it hasn't spent a ton of time on the lees or anything or on the dead yeast cells. Mm -hmm. So you have a second fermentation in bottle. Amazing. All natural bubbles coming from juice of the same type. Amazing. I know. It's delicious. Yep. And that frizzante is... The reason we don't call this a traditional method sparkler is because... Meaning a champagne method sparkler is because it has too little gas... Mm. You need to have a certain amount of atmospheres or, or pressure to call th- right. to start calling things a certain category, and so this is technically a frizzante. It's got, you know, three to four, or two to four atmospheres. This is likely less than four, but um, you know, just this light frizzante, just super delicious. Yeah, I want to drink this. We've got almost a whole bottle still. <laughs> I know, I'm all like worried about not having enough. No, just kidding. Um, no, but this is why I like this is because it kind of tugs at the heartstrings of like if you want something fruity and you want something funky and you want something lively and you want something mm-hmm. serious, mm-hmm. something that smells like decay and yet formation. It's yeah. like all the things in one. It is. Thank you, Libra wine. Yeah. Ah. Delish. So those are that's just like a quick tidbit. Rosé is a really fun, easy topic to talk about. There, are, mm-hmm. you know, only really only a few ways you can get a rosé um, in terms of its color. But there are myriad flavors. I would urge you to at some point, if you're a drinker of wine on a you know a few times a week or every day, <laughs> like most of us sane people out there, to stick with rosé for one month, and you'd be shocked at how. Just trying different ones, yeah. And how I, I, when people are like, well, I don't want rosé because it's winter, I'm like, why? <laughs> All your food is heavy. 
Yeah. So have something that's, I mean, and tell me this isn't a autumnal. Yeah. I mean, you could drink this and crush this in the summer. Yeah. But you could also. You could also crush it in the fall. <laughs> yep. No kidding, man. Oh, With some so like good. shish kebabs. Yeah. Not what I was expecting <laughs> you to say, but yeah, <laughs> yes. Obby with some shish kebabs. Obby. <laughs> Hashtag Emily Reese and the shish kebabs. Uh, All right. Well, so let's English horn, shall we? Yeah. English horn is an instrument that kind of evolved from an oboe in the 1700s. And uh, the English horn is also outside of basically the U.S., known as the cor anglais, and it's spelled C-O-R for horn, space, a-N-G-L-A-I-S, Cor Anglais, uh, which does translate to English horn, even though there's really nothing English about it at all. Um, there's a bend at the neck, which is one of the differentiating visual features, other than the fact that it is longer than an oboe. But there is a little bend in the de- in the neck. I'm not sure exactly the, the degree to which the bend is. It's not like a 45-degree angle or yeah. anything like that, but that there is a bend there. Um, God, you're right. Pixie sticks. I know, right? God, I'm eight, yeah. I'm eight and high on sugar. Yeah. The blue one. So, <laughs> yes. So uh, the English horn, again, it's longer. It's got a bulbous end. So there's like this kind of ball-shaped bottom to it, which gives it a little bit warmer of a resonant sound. Um, the reeds are slightly different in construction in terms of the materials used, but they it is still two pieces of cane wound together, slightly longer and slightly wider than an oboe reed. Okay? So let's listen to some. I mean, there are... So many great examples. I mean, there's just no shortage. English horn is one of my personal favorite instruments to hear. I love the sound because it's so deep. Um, but even though, and, and, and again, I want to be clear, it's not that much lower of a range than an oboe, but it's just enough for my ears. Does it, does it have an, I read something about, but I didn't know if I fully understood it, like it has an extra fifth? Like it has the ability to go down like... I don't know if that means extra five notes or if that means, what does that mean? Well, it's a transposing instrument, so it sounds a fifth different than it's... Oh, written. okay. Yeah, so when an, when an English horn player plays what to them on the page looks like a C, it sounds like an F. So you could say that's a fifth down or a quarter or a fourth up. So, And we really should someday talk about why that is because the reason for having transposing instruments, like for instance, a trumpet is a B flat trumpet. Mm -hmm. So a trumpet plays what to them on the page is a C, but it sounds like a B flat. We'll talk about that sometime because that's a really cool, there's good reasons for that. Um, In any event, (laughs) English horn, let's listen to some, uh, you know, whenever I think English horn, the first thing that comes to my mind is Pines of Rome by Adorino Respighi. And we're going to listen to the last movement. Premiered in 1924 and a symphony poem of four movements, of which yeah. we're going to listen to the fourth, right? Correct. Yep. Okay. This is, uh, uh, Adorino Respighi was Italian, and he wrote what's called the Roman Triptych, one of which is Pines of Rome. Uh, he also wrote a piece called Fountains of Rome, and then the other one is like Roman festivals or so- something like that. I can't remember right off the top of my head. But in any event, this is the final movement of Pines of Rome. Hold up, right before you push play, yeah. because I want to... Um, we talked about in a couple episodes ago, for those of you ha- who listened to um, the the clock, we, when we talked about the flower clock and oh, biodynamic yeah. calendar, yeah. this is when we talk about pines of Rome, it depicts different pine trees and in different places in Rome yep. at different times of day, which I think is really pretty. Mm-hmm. And this specific movement, the pines of uh, ap- ap- 
Appian, Appian Way. Way or Via Appia is how I, Via Appia is like super yep. famous part of the Roman Forum. It has to do with these pines and what they look like with like a Roman legion yeah. marching on them. And it, as interesting as it is on its own, it's, it is a symphonic poem, mm-hmm. which then if you listen to our tone poem, yeah. you'll know that the story will make this cor anglais sound even deeper. Yes. Here we go. I couldn't help myself. I love that. So could yeah. we now, before we go on to more Koranglay, could we do a little back to back? Oh yeah, just because so people can yep. hear that versus the other, and then they can fully embrace the Koranglay yes. for the last couple. Yes. Oh, it's so good! It's so good. Okay. Um. Yeah. Let's listen to a little. Uh. uh let's go ahead and just listen to the Stravinsky because sure. it happens right away. Yeah. Because you'll hear the oboe right away. So, I mean, slightly obviously, more piercing. Just it's different little. ensemble, different everything, different recording. Yeah, but you can hear some pretty clear differences. It's and much more m- piercing. Do you mind going back to the previous, Not just in the all. middle? So similar, yet just rounder. Just a little warmer. Deeper. Mm-hmm. Usually, too. And, I mean, I'd... I'd need to verify this with actual oboists, but it's my understanding that normally when you're hearing English horn, it's one of the oboe players doubling on it. It's not an actual English horn player. You know what I mean? It's like oh. they're doubling. So it's the oboist. So they're a badass. It, of course, yeah. And they get paid more for that too. <laughs> but <laughs> but yeah, if uh, you know, if the score calls for three oboes and then the third oboe doubles on English horn or something along those lines is how that's how like instruments like piccolo often work as well it'll be one it's of like the flutists the, it's like the you know you're going to be a sommelier you better know your beer and you better know your mezcal and you better know your scotch and you better know exactly. your you can't just can't be like just know wine yeah. yeah and woodwind players all the way around are like that especially saxophonists my goodness saxophonists are especially jazz saxophonists are often quite well versed on flute and clarinet as well. It's pretty ridiculous. Cool. Um, anyway, so that's some some English horn, and, um, you know, I wouldn't mind listening to one more in yeah. just a bit. Yeah, well, let's listen to one more now. So oh, you we want can, to now? Yeah, because I want to point something out about the wine, but yeah, let's listen. Now Should the we people, do Defaya? Yes, yes. Okay. <laughs> I picked this one for Jill because she has a Spanish heart, so I wanted to talk about a piece by Manuel Defaya, although he was from Cariz. Okay. Ole. Yeah. <laughs> Which some people would say you're Spanish and some people would say that you are Jerezano. Okay. Or you are uh, from Andalusia. Okay. Like the deep south. Gotcha. So. Okay. Uh, Manuel de Faya is quite famous 
a tune called Three Cornered Hat, ballet, another ballet. And this is the Miller's Dance, which happens uh, fairly early in the second act and just starts with an amazing uh, horn solo. And that's totally epic and then goes right away into some English horn. So uh, here we go. This is Manuel de Falla. This is the Miller's Dance from the Three Cornered Hat. I mean, there's no more English horn right now, but it's just the, the This was written in, in 1919, which was like a really interesting time in Spanish history for so many things going on politically that if you're if you're a history buff and you don't know a lot about Spanish history, you will forever be enthralled with the 1900s in Spain. Depressed, too. Yeah. But um, it that part just sounds like beginning of the 1900s nice. in the Spanish South. Well, I wanted to just go back to, um, do you mind if we, here, dump your Giardino into my glass? Lucky me. just dump it into my, no, I'm just kidding. That's a a lot to dump. (laughs) That would be a lot to dump into my mouth. All right. So what I want to do is so we can both back to back quickly, because I know that's something we like to do on the show when we have the opportunity. So I'm pouring into Emily's glass, the Martha Stuman, Mm -hmm. and I'm going to, she's going to taste it, quickly hand me her glass, and then... I'm going to pass my glass now that is has the Giardino, the Rosato Frizzante. And then we'll, so we're going to taste the Martha Stuman first. To me, that's such a, it's, it's a very serious rosé com- compared to this other one. And could you, could you, I was like, oh yeah, chug poolside. Blah, blah, blah. For sure. I still could. But now I taste that. Yeah. Yeah. And I couldn't chug this poolside. I'd right. be like, let's chug a bottle. Let's this chug like- f- seven bottles of Giordano Frizzante, and then let's have the yeah. Stumen for dinner yeah. with something. Now, mm-hmm. maybe 2019 Rosé comes out. I'll feel differently because it'll be like fresh and less mm-hmm. oak will be at the fore. But- <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's really ridiculous. They're both delicious, but the Martha Stumen is like the 4.0 valedictorian wine, and the other one is a little more like- Maybe cutting class on a Friday, going skiing for the weekend or something. I agree. This is like my issue with this kind of wine. The only issue that I have which, with it. Which kind of wine? Uh, sorry, with the Giardino. Okay. Is if someone were to be like, what grape is this? Oh. We're at that point in the world of natural wine where it's like really hard to start saying, gosh, I'm tasting this frizzante from Campania. You could probably get to volcanic soils maybe, but <laughs> Aglianico, I mean, yeah, I guess how many volcanic grapes are there that are this dark in the world, you know, you kind of would sure, have to, you but you'd do, have to start. Do some deduction. Yep, on, exactly. But blind tasting you, might be harder if you didn't get to see it. Well, if I, oh yeah, if I couldn't see the color, you mean? Mm-hmm. Yeah, most definitely. And so, I don't know, but that said, if that's my only issue with this yeah, thing, exactly. <laughs> serve it up all day. Uh-huh. Brahms first symphony which has its own whole tragic amazing story to it that we'll hopefully hear someday but there's some uh the first movement it's quite angsty um 
Well, <laughs> I say that before Brahms. we get to Shostakovich, though. <laughs> That's hilarious. Uh, but Brahms, you know, was an emotional fella, but boy, did he write beautiful melodies. So here's just a, a little taste of some of the oboe solos that happen in the second movement of Brahms' Symphony Number no. 1. There's another solo in there, but we don't need to hear it. Just go listen to the second movement of Brahms' first symphony. <laughs> You'll not regret it. It's a beautiful thing. Well, and going from, that's probably a great segue, that beautiful oboe piece. We have that and we have the frizzante rosato to get us through the next one. Because next the next one one's is a heavy one. Yeah. Shostakovich. Dmitry Shostakovich had a very sad and difficult life because he was a composer in the Soviet era. Well, right before it and then during it. And that made his life really hard. And he didn't leave Russia. He stayed, which most other composers left. Rachmaninoff left, Stravinsky left, Prokofiev left. They all left. Shostakovich stayed and he paid heavily for it. But also, you know, whatever. That's a whole other story. But his eighth symphony is remarkable in that it builds to this giant climax. The first movement of his Eighth Symphony is quite long. It's more than 20 minutes long, and it builds to this huge climax. And then there's this, what's called a grand pause, so the orchestra plays to this loud, you know, just cacophonous almost climax, and then there's silence for about five or six seconds, an uncomfortable amount, basically to let the whole orchestra ring out, so there's no more sound. And then this English horn solo appears out of the ether, and it's one of the most moving things. So we'll just listen to a little bit of that climax it's pretty intense oh poor Shostakovich it's heartbreaking I know written right around the time of the second world war I mean lord knows you know Also, much like Von Williams, certainly not every piece Shostakovich wrote by any stretch, because he did a lot of really lighthearted film music as well, but you can certainly hear some of Shostakovich's darker works and just be like, that's definitely Shostakovich. <laughs> it's like there'd be no one else. <laughs> This is one of the world's most beautiful instruments that never meant for itself to be solemn. Yeah. But And we've listened to, obviously, examples that aren't that way. Mm-hmm. But, man, it has the power like some other instruments don't. It's, yeah, I mean, it goes on and on, and it's it's beautiful. It's a long solo. But such the, a profound example, too, just like, 
I would have been remiss to not bring that one up. Good call, Emily Reese. Well, this was a great <laughs> crash course. We could rosé and oboe. We might actually have crash course two, three, and four on rosé and oboe. <laughs> exactly. Uh, in Korangai because they're all so awesome. It's good stuff. Uh, but for now, to springtime. Springtime. And to scores and pours. Scores and pours. Thank you for listening to Scores and Pours with Jill Mott and Emily Reese. You can find links and information about this episode at patreon.com slash scores and pours and Instagram at scores and pours. We rely on donations here. We would love it if you would support us for as little as $1 or as little as one euro a month. We'd be grateful for that. You can do that at patreon.com slash scores and pours. Pony up, people. Pony up. Edited by Emily Reese and Jill Mott. Our producer is Sam Keenan. Scores and Pours is a production of June Media Inc.